Well, let's go ahead and get started. Uh, we'll pray and then uh, start the Bible study. Father God, I just thank you again for just the greatest gift, one may argue, is actually the Word of God. If it wasn't for the Word of God, we would never know that the Son of God gave himself for our sins. Lord, if it wasn't for the Word of God, we wouldn't know your heart. We wouldn't understand your thoughts, your ways, Lord. And even, even though we're finite, Lord, we get a glimpse of the infinite through your word. And Lord, as we open up the, the Bible tonight, Genesis 28, Lord, we just pray that you would just unwrap it for us. You would speak to our hearts, and it would just be powerful, Lord, in each of our lives. So we give you this time, Lord Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. So Genesis chapter 28 is where we're at today. You'll remember last week we saw uh, Isaac, you know, he says to Esau to go out and get your bow and go hunt for me some of that game that I love. And you bring it in, I'll eat it and I'll bless it. And Rebecca, she overhears uh, this conversation and she tells Jacob, go get two goats from the flock real quick and I'll make savory food such as your father likes and you'll take it in uh, to him. He'll eat and he'll bless you. He'll bless you instead of your brother Esau. And Jacob says, mom, don't be ridiculous. I mean, you know what? Esau's hairy like Chewbacca and I'm a smooth-skinned man and uh, dad's sure to notice and I'll seem to be a deceiver to him and I'll bring a curse upon myself. And Rebecca said, just listen to me and do what I tell you to do. So Rebecca, she cooks up those goats. She takes the skins of the goats, puts them on uh, Jacob's arms, puts them on his ne neck, sends them in to Isaac in an effort to, to fool Isaac so that Jacob can be blessed. You know, and the idea is Jacob would bless, or sorry, I, Isaac would bless Jacob thinking that he was actually blessing Esau. So Jacob went into his father and uh, lied to him to receive the blessing. And we need to realize that at this point in the story, Jacob is not actually a believer. He doesn't know the Lord. He's not saved, if you will. And at this point, God is the God of Abraham and Isaac, but he's not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Chapter 28 of Genesis is actually the account of Jacob's conversion. Well, as Jacob is lying to his dad and he's getting this blessing, you know, um, after Isaac had blessed Jacob, thinking he was Esau, Jacob left his dad and then Esau came in. And Esau, when he came in, Isaac said to him, who are you? He said, I'm Esau, I'm your firstborn. Rise and, and eat and then give me the blessing. And Isaac told Jacob, or Isaac told Esau that Jacob had come in and took his blessing. And now he is blessed. And hearing this, Esau vows that he's going to murder Jacob once his dad dies. And you know, Rebecca, she must be incredibly snoopy, or she has really good ear, uh, really good ears. <laughs> she has really good hearing, right? Because she overhears Esau's plan to kill Jacob, and so she goes to work on Isaac. She goes into Isaac, and she starts lying and manipulating um, Isaac in order to get Jacob sent away. And she says, look, if Jacob takes a girl from the neighborhood, you know what? It's going to be a terrible grief to me, and my life won't be worth living. But uh, what she was really up to was she was trying to get some distance between Esau and Jacob so that she could save Jacob's life. And as you study through Genesis 27, you walk away with the impression that, man, this is really a seriously dysfunctional family. They're a mess. And it's really sad. It's unfortunate. And now Genesis 28, verse 1. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said to him, you shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take yourself a wife from there of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. Now Isaac realizes that there's no thwarting God's plan. It was his desire to bless Esau over Jacob but it didn't go as he planned. He winds up blessing Jacob. And it's at this point that he realizes 
what's happened. And this holy fear comes upon uh, Isaac, and he begins to shake violently, it says. And he's shaking so much. I mean, he's shaking. He probably falls off of his chair. And now, Isaac, he understands that God's plans are going to come to pass. God's plans are going to come to pass. And Jacob is indeed the son who's going to be blessed and elevated over his brother. And so Jacob, he, or Isaac, he charges Jacob not to take a wife from among the Canaanite women. Verse 3, may God bless you. And you'll remember that Jacob's fear in the scheme of Rebekah's is that he would bring a curse upon himself. Remember, it's, it's uh, Genesis 27, 12. Uh, Jacob says, perhaps my father will fill me and, seem, and I will seem to be a deceiver to him and I shall bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. But true to God's purpose, Isaac isn't cursed. But just like Rebekah had said in verse 13, she said, let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go get them for me. Rebekah, she was actually cursed right? She's never going to see her beloved son again. And that just is a reminder to us, it needs to be a reminder to us of how tragic the consequences of sin can be. Remember, she told Jacob to go to her family's home and there in Haran, stay there until Esau's kind of cooled down, and then I'll send word to you and you can come back, but it never happens. Never happens. Jacob is going to spend 20 years working for Laban, and Rebecca will never see her son again. She'll never get to hold any of Jacob's grandchildren, uh, any of her grandchildren, never hold any of Jacob's kids. And it's just the saddest story. But here we see Isaac, he blesses Jacob. He says, may God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may be an assembly of peoples and give you the blessing of Abraham to you and your descendants with you, that you may inherit the land in which you are a stranger, which God gave to Abraham. So Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padanaram, to Laban, the son of Bethuel the Syrian, the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob and Esau. And Esau saw that, saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padanaram to take himself a wife from there. And that as he blessed him, he gave him a charge, saying, you shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and had gone to Padan Aram. Also, Esau saw that the daughters of Canaan did not please his father Isaac. So Esau went to Ishmael and took Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebajoth, to be his wife in addition to the wives he had. I mean, Esau, <laughs> poor guy. He just doesn't get it. He doesn't get it. He sees that the wives that he was married to previously, the Canaanite women, that they were a grief to his parents. So he figures, I'm going to just fix it. I'll get me another wife. And Esau thinks, I'll go to the descendants of Abraham and get a wife. Surely that's going to make my folks happy. And Esau, being the godless man that he was, having no interest in spiritual things, he just doesn't understand the covenants of God. So he goes to Ishmael, who's a descendant of Abraham. See, that's what he's thinking. He's a descendant of Abraham. He'll take Ishmael's daughter, uh, Mahalath, to be his wife. And to me, it's just so sad because the unchosen son goes to the unchosen line of Ishmael to obtain a wife, hoping to please his parents. And he doesn't understand the promises that are given to Abraham, handed down through Isaac, but not to Ishmael. He doesn't get it. And Esau is trying to gain favor, it seems like, with his family. Maybe he's even trying to gain some favor with God, but he's going about it in the efforts of his flesh with his, his own wisdom, and he just doesn't get it. In verse 10, now Jacob went out from Beersheba and went towards Haran. So Jacob is leaving his father's house, He's going uh, to Haran. It's about 450, 500 miles uh, away. And um, it says, verse 11, so he came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set. 
And he took one of the stones of that place and put it at his head, and he lay down in the place to sleep. And as we read on, we're going to see that this place is, is called Bethel. It's about 70 miles from Beersheba. It's about a three-day journey. And the picture here is, for the last three days, Jacob, he's been running. He's been fleeing for his life, trying to get away from Esau. And he knew that Esau wanted to kill him. So he's just running for his life just as fast as he can go. And he probably ran uh, day and night for three days. And he probably got to this place where he couldn't run anymore. And uh, he's, he's so tired. So what does he do? He just grabs a rock for a pillow. Now, you know, I've been camping. I've never been that tired or that desperate to grab a rock as a pillow. I don't know about you guys, but it shows us how desperate and tired he is. And Jacob becomes this perfect picture now of this unsaved, of the unsaved sinner. You might say, well, how so? Well, you see him. He's deceitful. He's lying. He's hypocritical. He's fleeing the father's house. He's fleeing certain wrath to come, and it's wrath that he deserves. He's there in the darkness, and he's completely ignorant that God is near him and that God wants to save him and actually wants to be a blessing to him. So Jacob is a picture of the unsaved sinner now in our story. Verse 12, it says, Then he, Jacob, dreamed, and behold, the ladder was set up on the earth, and its top reached to heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it. So this is, this is a key biblical you know, uh, passage right here. And what's the significance of Jacob's ladder? Well, thankfully, we don't have to guess about it. The New Testament tells us that that ladder is actually Jesus Christ. So if you want to look, let's turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1. Keep your finger here in Genesis uh, chapter 28, and we'll look at um, this story. John chapter 1, starting in verse 43. John chapter 1, 43, says, The following day Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We found him whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So we see just this completely normal thing here, right? Once you find Jesus, you know, you want to share him with your friends. You want to share him with your family. You want to see them come to know Christ too. You want to see them be saved. So Philip went to Nathanael and said, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? I mean, the equivalent might be, Can any good thing come out of the Bay Area? Or, okay, I don't have to go. I already got to laugh. <laughs> Can any good thing come out of Sacramento or Reno? I mean, uh, Maybe that's not exactly the way it is. I haven't been here long enough to know the equivalent, maybe. But you understand what I'm saying, right? Not only was Nazareth looked down upon at this time, right? But Nathaniel, he's probably a student of the Word. He's a student of Scripture. He probably understood that there's no reference in the Old Testament of the Messiah coming from Nazareth. And the Scriptures, you know... Uh, did prophesy that the, the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. But Nathaniel doesn't know where Jesus is from at this point. He thinks he's from Nazareth because Philip told him that. And so he says, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And Philip says to him, come and see. Philip says, you know, nothing good could possibly come out of Nazareth. There's no prophecies about anything coming out of Nazareth. And Philip couldn't answer Nathaniel's theological questions. So what does Philip do? He just wisely says, you know what? I don't know. I don't have the answers for you. But why don't you just come and see? Why don't you just come and see for yourself and meet the Messiah while you're at it? 
And so, says verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold an Israelite in whom is no deceit. Now, some translations, and maybe the one you're reading, you'll read, it says, in whom there is no guile. But it can also be translated, in whom there's no Jacob. See, Jacob means deceit. It means guile. It means deception. And in contrast to Nathaniel, Jesus says Jacob was an Israelite who was full of deceit and guile, right? So Nathaniel says to Jesus, verse 48, how do you know me? And Jesus answered him and said, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And apparently, Nathaniel had been under a fig tree that morning, and no him, him knew it. And it's interesting to notice here that Jesus has knowledge of us before we have knowledge of him. I love it. And this was a private sign to Nathaniel alone of who Jesus was, and no one else understood this. And it's also interesting to note, and this could be a possible uh, scenario also. This is what I really believe is the case. Under the fig tree, it was a saying in those days of when you uh, spent time in the Word studying and meditating. They would say you were under the fig tree. It was just when you were spending time communing with the Lord. And the language infers here that Nathaniel, he may have been reading or meditating on the account of Jacob's vision that we're reading about in Genesis 28, verse 12. And that's why Jesus, knowing the man Nathaniel, knowing that he'd been studying this, says, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no deceit. There's no Jacob. And when Nathaniel heard this, he knew who it was he was talking to at this point. And Nathaniel answered and said to him, Rabbi, you're the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending, not upon Jacob's ladder, but upon the Son of Man, Jesus says. And there's no doubt that Nathaniel immediately understood and understood completely what Jesus was saying. Jesus had already drawn Nathaniel's attention to this portion of Scripture, Genesis 28, when he had said that, that Nathaniel was indeed an Israelite, indeed in whom there's no deceit, no Jacob. And there's no doubt that Nathaniel understood that Jesus was claiming to be the ladder that Jacob sees in his vision. And Jesus is the one who has spanned that infinite gulf between sinful man and a, and a holy God. And that is the insight that Jesus is giving Nathaniel here. The scriptures tell us that God desires all men to be saved. 1 Timothy 2.4 says that he desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And Paul continues to say to Timothy in verses 5 and 6, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Jesus is Jacob's ladder. He hung there on the cross between heaven and earth, reconciling sinful men to a holy God. And it was as if while he was hanging there, Jesus Christ, being the Son of God, with one hand takes the hand of the Father, and Jesus Christ, being the Son of Man, with the other hand takes the hand of sinful man, and he brings us into that right relationship with the Father. Jesus is the latter. He's the mediator. He's the one that spanned that infinite gulf between sinful man and Almighty God. And now Jacob's ladder is seen here in Genesis 28 as a way to go from earth into God's presence. Did you notice? It's kind of interesting. The angels are ascending and descending. I mean, they start here on earth and go up. 
I mean, it's kind of cool to think that, you know, the angels are here in our midst, but they're ministering spirits to those that uh, are saints. And again, the ladder is a, is a way to go from earth into the presence of God. And it's a picture, it's a picture of Jesus. And that Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes uh, to the Father except through me. And again, Jacob's ladder was set up here on earth where our sinful fugitive Jacob, our sinful fugitive laid in darkness, and the top of the ladder reached up to heaven where God stood. And again, it's a picture now. It's also a picture of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. How his death and resurrection opened the way for sinful fugitives to draw near to God. It's a perfect picture that's being painted here for us. In verse 13, Genesis 28 says, And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I'm the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give you and your descendants. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall uh, spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and the south. And in you and in your seed, the seed is singular. It's a reference to the Messiah. In your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And we can't miss it. This is God's heart. Here we see God's heart. The Messiah would, be, would bring blessing to all the families of the earth. That's God's heart. And that needs to be our heart too. We should want to see the Messiah be brought to all the families of the earth. And it's a very small thing. I mean, we live in such abundance in this, in this nation, in our culture, especially during this holiday season that we're entering in. I mean, it's such a small thing. We have the opportunity to take part in Operation Christmas Child, and I hope everyone in the church uh, would put together a shoebox and share the love of Christ with some little boy or some little girl that doesn't know Christ. It's a very small thing for us just to show God's love in that way. And a lot of times people say, you know, what can I do? The world's so big. What can I do? Well, this is something, the shoebox is something that we all can do. And I just encourage, you know, us as a church, to just get involved, put together a shoebox, and uh, share the love of Christ in a practical way, and be a blessing to somebody that doesn't know Christ, a little boy, a little girl, impact their life forever. And, you know, be a blessing to those missionaries who are there spending their life ministering to these kids. We can all be part of it. God's heart is that the Messiah would bring blessing to all the families of the earth. And that needs to be our heart, too. Too often churches get turned inward. They get their eyes on themselves. You know, it's all about us. You know, how can we be more comfortable? We need a bigger building. We need better chairs. What we need to be concerned with is what concerns Jesus. And that's the world. And I'm praying that we as a church, we would have this heart to reach out to more areas that hasn't yet heard the gospel. And I'm praying that many in the church would accompany me to South Asia when the uh, travel ban lifts. You know, I'm in conversations right now with a guy who has connections in Cambodia, and they're begging people to come over and help with outreach. I would love to take a, a group next, next year to Cambodia. You know, we've been working um, for years now starting a Bible college in, in Jordan to raise up local nationals to equip them with the Word of God. There's 2 million refugees in Jordan. And we want to raise up people to go out and minister to Muslim refugees there. And I pray that God, I pray God that Calvary Chapel Truckee would be part of that work in Jordan. You know, Saudi Arabia has just opened up its borders. You can go there as a tourist. I have friends that are moving there. You know what? How cool would it be for us to take a team to Saudi Arabia to reach out to the people there that have never heard of the gospel? You know, my heart is let's go help them. Let's go support those missionaries. God, give us eyes, not just for what he wants to do in our backyard, not just here in Truckee. And I believe God wants to use us powerfully 
as a church here in Truckee, make no mistake about it. But God, give us eyes for what he wants to do over the horizon. God, give us burning hearts for the loss of this world. You know, there's nothing that will set a heart on fire in our church greater than taking a, a mission trip. Overseas missions is what sets people's hearts on fire to, shump, to come back and share Christ in their neighborhood. And I pray that we would be a sending church, but you know what? My prayer is that we would be a going church, that we would go. It's God's heart that the Messiah would be a blessing to all the world. And we see that in Genesis 27. We see this dark chapter of this dysfunctional, just this terribly dysfunctional family, Isaac, who's grown so spiritually dim that he wants to bless Esau, godless Esau. He doesn't even recognize how godless Esau was. Rebekah manipulating and lying and deceiving. And those are the seeds that she planted in her son Jacob that grew up. And Esau, you know, wanting to murder his brothers. I mean, it doesn't get any darker. It doesn't get any more dysfunctional uh, than what you see in this family. But we saw this beautiful gem there in that chapter 27. We saw Jacob coming to the father in the name of the beloved son. He came in the name of the firstborn, the, the father's beloved son, and he was accepted. And Jacob came to the father in the name of the beloved son to receive a blessing that he didn't deserve. And he came in the, the clothed, clothed in the garments of Esau that gave off a sweet aroma to the father. It was pleasing to Isaac. And what a picture that is of the gospel when we come to God in the name of Jesus Christ. There's acceptance for us. And when we come to God sheltered behind the name of Jesus, you know what? The beloved son there's blessing for us, blessings that we don't deserve. And as we come to God in the name of Jesus, the Father's beloved Son, clothed in His garments of righteousness, there's an aroma that's pleasing to the Father. And He accepts us and He blesses us. In Genesis 27, it needs to be a bedrock of our understanding. We need to allow Genesis 27 to become a best friend in our lives as we walk with the Savior. The God we love is the God that hid that gem for us to discover in that chapter. And it's a wonderful message there for families uh, on the earth to understand. It's for all those who've come from a dark and dysfunctional family. You know, it's a message for them in a very real way. It's a message for each of us in a very wonderful, rich way. That's our God. That's our Savior. That's His heart of blessing for each and every person in the world. And Genesis 28, 13 says, And behold, the Lord stood above it, above the ladder. Try to picture this now. Just try to picture this like, like you're in Jacob's shoes. You're seeing this. You're a liar, and you're a schemer, and you're a hypocrite, and you're fleeing from your uh, father's house under the pretense that you're going to get a wife. Picture it as if you're Jacob. And Jacob sees this vision, and he hears this voice. And this voice says, I'm the Lord, all caps, I am Jehovah God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. And the land which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. All the land, all of Israel, it's yours, Jacob. All of it. It's all yours. It's all yours. All this land, it's all yours. There's no debate who the land belongs to. It belongs to God. The heavens and the earth are his. Deuteronomy 10, 14 says that. Indeed, heaven and the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God, also the earth and all that's in it. It's all God's, and he can give that land to whoever he wants to, whoever he wishes. And over and over again, we read that the land was given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God has given the land to the Jewish people. But just try to imagine it. Jacob, the land on which you lie, I will give you. It's all yours and your descendants. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and the east, to the north and the south. Try to picture uh, Jacob, right? He's hearing this, 
And in you, Jacob, you lying, scheming, deceiver, in you, Jacob, and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I mean, just imagine it for a minute. Jacob knows who he is. What do you think Jacob's thinking about when he hears this? What do you think he's thinking about? Verse 15, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, and I will not leave you until I've done what I've spoken to you. You have to ask yourself, what does Jacob do? What did he do to deserve a blessing like this? What did Jacob do to earn these wonderful things of, from God? And the answer is nothing, absolutely nothing. He didn't do anything. The only thing that this deceitful, lying, hypocritical Jacob deserves is judgment. But here in this chapter, we see, and we, we, we see this marvelous grace of God. As we read this chapter and see God appearing to this scheming liar saying, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you the land. I'm going to be with you and I'm going to keep you. It's just God's wonderful, marvelous, amazing, glorious grace that reaches out to Jacob like this. And we understand God's grace. The scriptures reveal to us that God graciously chooses the foolish things of the world. He graciously selects those that have nothing to give, right? And he gives them everything. He graciously singles out those who deserve nothing but judgment and bestows upon them nothing but blessing. That's exactly what we see here with Jacob. And we need to understand this whole chapter is a picture of a sinner being saved. And it's the picture of how gracious God has been to each one of us. None of us have des deserved God's blessing, the blessings that he's poured out on us in Christ Jesus. We were saved by grace. And even Paul said, uh, he said, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Because of God's grace, I am what I am. It's not because of me. I've never had anything to do to do with it. It has nothing to do with me. It's always been and always will be God's grace in my life. And perhaps tonight, God is graciously speaking to a heart, singling you out. And you know you deserve nothing but judgment, but God is offering you nothing but blessing. I mean, that's who our God is. He's that gracious. And it's a beautiful revelation of His grace that we see in his dealing uh, here with Jacob, verse 16, then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. So God has revealed himself to Jacob. Now Jacob is aware of the Lord's presence. He went to sleep unaware of God's presence. He's been fleeing for his life. He became so tired, he grabbed a rock to use it as a pillow, went to sleep totally unaware of God's presence. And then he woke a new man. And now he's aware of the Lord's presence. Verse 17, And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. And now you see after this night where God has revealed himself uh, to Jacob, you know, he's revealed this ladder to him. Now you see that after God has revealed his word to Jacob, that there's an awareness of God. It's awareness of his presence, and there's a healthy fear in God's life. He says, uh, well, there was no fear before. That's what you got to notice. Now there's this fear of God when he went in and there was no fear when he went in and lied to his dad. And his dad says, how'd you get the game so fast? And he says, well, dad, your, your God brought it to me. That's how I did it. There was no fear at all of God in him before. But now there's this healthy fear in God's, of God in his life. He wakes up, and now there's this healthy reverence for God and who he is. And he says, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. And it's interesting to note that the ladder he saw was the gate of heaven. He was able to piece it together. He was able to think it through, and he concludes, what I've seen is the gate of heaven. 
the gate to the house of God. And again, it's a wonderful picture because what did Jesus say? He said, John 10, 9, he said, I am the gate is what some translations say. Others say, I am the door. And Jesus continues to say, he who enters by me, he'll be saved. So Jacob, he understands here that this ladder is the gate of heaven. And that's who Jesus is. Jesus is the gate of heaven. He's the only way to God. And it's through Jesus that we gain access to heaven. In verse 18, then Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put on his head, set up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. Now this speaks of worship first and foremost. We see after this night and this dream that he had, the words that he heard, Jacob's now aware of God. There's this fear of God in, in his life. And now he sets up this pillar. And it just speaks of worship. Jacob is now a worshiper. He sets this pillar up and he pours oil all over it. Not only does it speak of worship, but it speaks of a public testimony. There's now a public testimony. Here we see this outward evidence of an inward conversion that has taken place during the night. And wherever there's an inward conversion, it'll always be accompanied by an outward evidence that shows the conversion in our heart was true. So this pillar speaks of worship. It speaks of a public testimony. And it may also be a, a prophetic picture of what happened to Jacob. He was the hard rock. And it's the oil of the Holy Spirit as it was poured out on him. He becomes a new man. He became saved. So perhaps it's a prophetic picture of what happened to Jacob and the conversion that took place in his heart that night. Verse 19 and he called the name of this place Bethel, but the name of the city had been Luz previously. And it's interesting to note that Luz means separated. And of course, Bethel means the house of God, and what a picture it is. Not only was Jacob changed, but he changed the name of the city, which symbolized what happened to him. Up until this point, Jacob has been separated from God. And it was not until his conversion that he has access now to the house of God. And when he arrived at Luz, he was separated. But when he left, he had access to the house of God. Verse 20, Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me. And the more accurate translation would be, Since God will be with me. The Hebrew word, uh, you know, uh, if God or sense God. The Hebrew word can be translated either, other way, either way. And I don't believe Jacob is bargaining with God here, right? If you'll do this for me, then I'll do that for you. You know, do we got a deal? Let's shake on it. No, I don't think Jacob's bargaining with God here. Not after all, uh, not after the night that he had. Not after the dream and the vision he had. And we read in Genesis 35, he points back to this experience as, as when he was converted and God, uh, Jacob, he makes this vow. He says, you know, since God will be with me, he makes this vow saying, since God will be with me, as he said, and keep me in, the, in this way that I'm going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And it's here that God becomes the God of Jacob. He's now the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God has revealed himself to Jacob. He's revealed his ladder to Jacob. He's revealed his word to Jacob. And in response to that revelation, in response to the ladder that bridged heaven and earth, in response to his word, Jacob vows, the Lord shall be my God. I'm giving myself to him now. And that's a question for everyone that is hearing my voice that they need to ask themselves. Have you made that vow? Have you given yourself to him? And are you totally and completely his? Can you say God is my God? It's talking about a personal relationship with God Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. And it's here that Jacob enters into a personal relationship with God. And it used to be the God of his father's but after this night, 
God becomes his God. And Jacob refers to him as my God. Can you say that? If you can't say that tonight, then you're not saved. Until this point, Jacob knew of his father's God, but he wasn't saved. And if you look at the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, he repeatedly spoke of God after he got saved as my God. He did it time and time after again. He said, uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 4, he said, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus. He constantly spoke of God as, as my God. Is that the way you speak of God? Is he your God? If not, then, you know, that's why you're listening to this study today. God is wanting to draw you to himself. The spirit is being poured out on the hardness of your heart to point you to Christ, to point you to the latter, the Messiah, the only way to the Father. And Paul also spoke of Jesus as my Lord. Uh, Philippians 3.8, Paul said, Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, or literally dung. I count everything as dung compared to Jesus that I may, may, uh, may gain Christ, he says. Can you refer to Jesus as your Lord? Do you know him personally? And Paul also spoke of my gospel. Paul called it my gospel because he owned the truth. Can you say that about the gospel that Christ died for you? Do you personally own that truth? Is it your gospel? Can you, say that, can you say that God is your God, that Jesus is your Lord, and you personally own the gospel of Jesus Christ? It's a question we all have to ask ourselves. Verse 22, And this stone which I've set up as a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I'll surely give a tenth or a tithe to you. So Jacob realizes that his dedication meant nothing until his material goods were brought under the control of God. He understood that it was his, if his material goods were not brought under the control of God, you know, everything that he said up to this point is just words. Here we see Jacob giving of his material goods. He gives a tithe as an act of worship. And it's worth noting that this example of tithing that's here before us uh, is before the law was given. You know, people, they'll say, you know, Gare, you know, you're bringing the church under the law if you teach them to tithe. But that's not true. The tithe was taught before the law was given. The first place we saw uh, the tithe, the first place we were taught about tithe, Genesis 14, Melchizedek, an Old Testament picture of Jesus Christ, brought out bread and wine to Abraham, um, symbols of Christ's sacrifice. And in response to the bread and the wine, Abraham gave a tenth of all of his possessions to Melchizedek. And that's the first time we see tithing. We see Jesus and his sacrifice in the story of Genesis 14. And it teaches us that we're to tithe in response to what Jesus has done for us. And we see the same thing here a second time we see tithing in the Bible. Jacob tithes in response to this vision. This dream he has been given of this ladder, and that ladder uh, is none other than Jesus Christ. And Jacob is, in tithe, is tithing in response to what Jesus has done, spanning that infinite gap that Jesus uh, bridged, bringing reconciliation between sinful man and a holy God. So Jacob is tithing. Now, relax. I'm not going to get all into a tithing thing. I, I got a lot to say about tithing, but I, I will make a few comments. I won't go too far. Alexander McLaren, a great Scottish preacher, I love what he says about tithing. He says, I love to teach about tithing because those that tithe embrace the teaching and they welcome it with joy. And those that don't, I like to watch them squirm. That's what he said. <laughs> You know, as a church, we should be tithing. The Bible teaches the tithe belongs to the Lord. God says in Malachi, uh, 
verse 3, or chapter 3, verse 8, will a man rob God? Yet you've robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. And he goes on to say, verse 10, bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that, that there will uh, not be room enough to receive it. And the word tithe, it just means a tenth in Hebrew. And the Bible teaches that 10%, the first 10% is to come into the church that you're attending where you're being fed. When I was a missionary, people said, Gary, I want to give you my tithe. And I'd say, no, I don't want it because it goes to the church. It goes to where you're being fed. And, um, you know, God says, if you'll bring the tithe to me, I'll bless you. And this is the only place in the Bible where God says, test me, try me on this, and see if what I'm telling you is not true. Proverbs 3, 9 and 10 says, honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruit of all your increase. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. And it's here in Genesis 28, we see this picture of why we're to give as God's people. It's not primarily to receive a blessing from God. That's just a bonus for us. But it's because Jesus is the great giver who has given himself for us. He gave his body and blood to bridge the gap for us. He bridged the gap between each of us as sinful men and women. He bridged that gap between us and brought us into a right relationship with the holy God, God the Father. And we are to give in response to him and the gift that he's bestowed upon us. People will say sometimes, you know what? I can't afford to tithe. I mean, I... I make so little, I'm barely making it uh, on what, what I have right now. And if that's the case, you know what I said, tell them? You can't afford not to tithe. God promises blessing and provision. The verse that everybody likes to quote, Philippians 4.19, And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. If you look carefully at the verse in context, it's given to those that are giving. That promises to people that are giving. And if we were obedient to give as God directs us as a church, just think about what we could do, how we could reach the lost. You know, the church that gives 10% of their income, it's a church that's a powerful church. You know, my sending church, Saving Grace, last year, we had $3 million go through our church to missions. And that church isn't really much bigger than what we are right now. We make a difference. Saving grace, we're making a difference all around the world for Jesus Christ. That church isn't much bigger, but it's the people that have caught this vision of reaching the lost and expanding God's kingdom. And one of the reasons why so many churches are impotent today is because so few of those within the church are giving. God instructs us to give because he knows there's something that, that's good that comes from us when we give. Every time we give, we give a little bit more of our selfishness away. I like what John Bunyan said. He said, giving was a way to beat back the overgrowth of my flesh. Now, here we see the picture of why we're to give because Jesus gave himself for our sake. He gave his blood and his body and he gave uh, his life for us that we might enjoy the blessings of God. And verse 22 continues, and this stone which I have set as a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. Now, let's take a minute and just look at the next verse, chapter 29, verse 1. It says this, So Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. Now the Hebrew literally says it this way, So Jacob lifted his feet and came to the land of the people of the east. The Amplified Bible, which the Amplified Bible is an attempt to translate the Hebrew in such a way that the average guy can get 
a fullness, fill the fullness of the original language. And the Amplified Bible says it this way. So Jacob went on his way. He walked briskly and cheerfully. He had a new, song, a new spring in his step. He had a song in his heart because he's saved. And just to recap now this chapter, God revealed his ladder and his word to Jacob. Jacob then acknowledged the Lord. He said, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. Jacob feared God and stood in awe of him. And next we read that he rose early in the morning and he worshiped God. He gave public testimony uh, of what God had done in his heart that night. And then he vows, he makes his vow to the Lord that he would be my God, he says. Then he began tithing. And if you know anything about Jacob, the idea that, that Jacob would open his wallet and start tithing, you know what? Truly was evidence of something miraculous, something supernatural that happened to him. And we see, last of all, there was a new spring in his step, and he has a song in his heart. And in closing, I think it's worth asking the question, when did God reveal himself to Jacob? It was when Jacob was running from his problems. And you know, maybe there's someone listening today, somebody even here today, somebody watching that is just running from their problems. When did God reveal himself to Jacob? It was when he was in distress. And again, are you feeling distressed today? Maybe God's singling, singling you out, trying to get your attention. When did God reveal himself to Jacob? It was when Jacob was burdened by his sin. Is that the way you're feeling tonight? God wants to reveal himself to each one of us. He wants to give us blessings that we don't deserve. He's with you. He's near. And even if you don't realize it, that's the truth. And all we need to do is just come to him in the name of Jesus and confess our need for him, and he'll meet us. Let's pray. Father God, I just thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you that your Holy Spirit is willing to take your word and plant it into our heart, make it applicable to each one of us, Lord, to encourage us, also to reveal to us your, your, your desire to be in our lives and to bless. And I'm so thankful that, God, you don't condemn those who come to you. You don't reject them. You embrace them. You accept them, those that come in the name of Jesus. Lord, we pray that your word would wash over us tonight. Lord, and you would accomplish those eternal purposes that you sent it out for us. And God, if there's anybody that is feeling distressed, anybody that is running or feeling burdened from their sins, Lord, I pray you would minister to them now and that they would even confess their situation, their sin, their struggle, and that they would look to you for salvation, look to you for a fresh infilling of your spirit, Lord. Would you meet them as they pray, God, forgive me for my sins. Come into my life, Lord. I want to give you my life or I want to rededicate my life to you. And I want to walk with you, Lord. I want you to be my God. I want you to be my Lord. I want it to be my gospel. But I pray that, that you would give those people that just need a touch from you, need a word from you, need encouragement. But I pray you'd meet them and meet them right where they're at and fill them with your Holy Spirit, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for your word. In your name we pray. Amen.